Uh, as we come here this morning, uh, we may be coming from uh, hectic situations, uh, rushing in the car to get here, or, or whatever it is. Uh, I know we just had Sunday school, and we had uh, lots of interesting technical mishaps going on. Um, but I want us to take a minute before we begin our service to prepare our hearts for worship, uh, to remind ourselves of the reality that God is present here, that he's with you, that he has been with you every moment of this day so far, but we are here uh, to praise and to worship him. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and today the Wagner family is here to light the candle for us. Good morning. The first week of Advent, we lit the hope candle in recognition of the hope we have in Christ. The second week, we lit the candle of peace as we considered Christ's coming to peace on earth. Week, we lit the candle of joy in recognition that Christ's coming is good news. The, the candle of love. The world tends to define love as a fleeting emotion or a good feeling you get from someone dear to you. But scripture tells us that love is a commitment to count the needs of another above your own. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than to lay down his life for his friends. In coming to the world and dying for the sins of his people, God has shown us perfect love. The psalmist celebrates God's love in his prayer in Psalm 36. Your love, Lord, reaches to the heaven, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. And God has answered that prayer by pouring out his love in Jesus Christ. In John 3, 16 through 17, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and to worship you. We thank you for your steadfast love towards us, Lord, that you've shown us in Jesus Christ that you welcome us here, not based off of what we have done, but based off what you've done. And this morning we offer you our worship. We ask that your spirit would be present, that you would teach us through the, the word as Pastor Robert brings his sermon this morning. We pray that you would reach our hearts as we sing these songs together. And we pray these things the way you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. 
This morning, as we turn to the Word of God, we're going to be going to the uh, 11th chapter of Nehemiah. And uh, it's, it's one of those things when you read the Bible, uh, Mark Twain once said, it's, it's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the things that I read that I do understand that bother me. Well, I'm, I'm worried that this morning as we read chapter 11, uh, first of all, there are so many names in it, I, I don't want to impress you by my uh, being able to pronounce the Hebrew names. And so I have selected verses that we'll be reading as we go through the 11th chapter. And so in light of that, uh, this morning as we read this passage, when we finish it, my fear for you is you will say, I don't understand that. And that is the reason why we're studying it. And so I invite you now this morning to hear the word of God as we read selected verses from chapter 11 of Nehemiah. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now, these are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the town of Judah, each of their own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. And from the descendants of Judah, the descendants of Perez, who lived in Jerusalem, they totaled about 468 men of standing. Verse 7, from the descendants of Benjamin, 928 men. From the priest who carried the, out the, on the work on the temple, 822 men. And then continuing on down in the passage, those who were heads of families, 242 men. Those who were men of standing, 128. And then from the Levites. The Levites, verse 18, in the holy city totaled 284. The gatekeepers, those who kept watch at the gates, 172 men. The rest of the Israelites with the priests and Levites were in all the towns of Judah, each on their ancestral property. The temple servants lived on the hill of Ophel and Zilhai and Geshva, where and were in charge of them. And the chief officers of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, who was one of Asaph's descendants and who were the musicians responsible for the service of the house of God. In verse 20, 25 or 23, the musicians were under the king's orders which regulated their uh, daily activities. And Pethaniah was the king's agent in the affairs relating to the people. And as for the village, or as for the villages with their fields, some of the people in Judah lived in Kereth, 
Arba and its surrounding settlements. And the descendants of Benjamin from Geba lived in Michmash, Aja, Bethel, and its settlements. And then finally, some of the divisions of the Levites of, Ju of Judah settled in Benjamin. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this chapter, we begin to wonder what difference does it make, how many men or who lived where, until we begin to discover that where we live really matters and how you use us in building your kingdom begins with where we are. And for that reason, bless the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts that we truly may be acceptable and pleasing unto you. We feel so inadequate to do what is right. And we need Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. It was kind of a discussion that came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. But the gentleman I was talking to, the neighbor, was saying, well, you believe in God? And I said, well, of course, don't you? And he said, yeah, I believe in God. But he says, you believe in Jesus? And my response was, without saying it loudly, I said, of course. Doesn't everybody? I mean, it's Christmas. But when I responded to him and said, yes, I believe in Jesus, he asked the ultimate question, which many people don't want to face, and that is, why? Why do you believe in Jesus? Do you know why you believe? At first, as I thought about how to make a representation of the faith, I began to ponder, how do you approach a question like that? You see, without even contemplating what he was thinking, I could not understand his thoughts or his mind. I was thinking, how do I, how do I say something that is meaningful to him, that he, he can understand and appreciate and, uh, and, and really not only uh, trust that it's true, but buy into it for his own life. You see, that's really the challenge that we have as a church today, because you and I know that we're living in times that are unusual to the United States of America. We're finding that less people are attending worship than has previously happened since before World War I. We're finding more and more of our culture not believing the things that we believe to be true and right and pure. We are living in days in which many people no longer believe that there is a God, much less that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And so as you and I as thinking Christians begin to think about our role in this day and this time in our nation, that question is going to loom largely in your own witness for Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ and you say yes, the answer or the next question that you must answer is why? Why do you believe in Jesus? And I dare say that many Christians are unprepared for that kind of question. Are you? It causes me great consternation. For those of you who are wondering what that means, I'm troubled in spirit. Because as a church, we're dealing with a culture that truly no longer holds a common 
moral value. And as much as I don't like knowing that, I have to face the facts that we are where we are as a nation today because of decisions and choices that have been made in the last three decades. And they involve the church's choice, yours and mine as Christians, how we have chosen to represent Christ to our nation, to our families, to our children, to our parents, to our neighbors. And so when you and I begin to wrestle with this whole business of chapter 11 in Nehemiah, we know now that we've come to a place where the walls have been finished. Jerusalem is now restored as a city. The temple has been rebuilt under the leadership of Ezra and the temple worship has now been reinstituted. And the whole prayers of people for generations has been answered by the Lord because the city is now restored. The work has been accomplished. The monument has been built. Now what? I dare say that many Christians use the church in the same way. We, we think of the church as a building because we, we want to have institutions that offer us safety and security. And so when we ask questions or get asked questions like, why do you believe in Jesus? We simply tell them, well, you need to go to church or go talk to the pastor. But the only problem with that is more and more we're finding that churches have pastors that can't answer the question. How can that be? Well, somewhere along the line of the last three decades, we have seen such an influx of change of belief in the culture that the church itself has become like the culture instead of the opposite direction. We're seeing more and more an accommodation in the church trying to accommodate the culture so that somehow we have some relevancy in what we say and what we proclaim. And in that desire to become relevant to our culture, I dare say that we as a church may have compromised the very message and purpose for our being here placed in this place, that the reason God has given you this place to live and this place to witness for him is for you to declare his glories and the mercies that you have received. We have dumbed down the Christian faith to thinking it's about just living a good life. And if you live it good enough, then God will give you what you ask for. Why, I dare say, if you turn on the TV this morning and you were to listen to sermons on the TV, most of them center around people searching for God to get what satisfies them materially. Is that the reason why Christ came into the world? Is that the reason for Christmas? Is that why you believe in Jesus? Well, this morning as we delve into chapter 11, what we're going to find is that Belief and faith in God has or involves costly accountability. And that accountability is to God himself. Because now that the temple has been rebuilt and the walls have been built, the whole purpose of all of this was that the people might declare to the world the praises of God and his mercy to those who seek him. The most amazing thing is that you would think that would be a non- negotiating start in a conversation 
But the truth is, many people don't even know this today. They think of Christianity as bunch of a, a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts. Live by this way, do by that. And many times when you go to a service of worship, you hear this message, be better people. Live smarter lives. Be good. Let me tell you something. Christ did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came into the world to make dead people live. And so in light of that whole message, the question is, why do you believe in Jesus? It's because once I was dead, but now I am alive. Alive to what? Alive to God. And if you have any other answer besides that, then you were still in darkness. Most of the people who were going to be living in the country as this city is restored were not going to be people who lived in Jerusalem. They had labored and worked so very hard, farmers giving up their incomes to build the walls of Jerusalem back so that there was a central place to worship, a central place to come and remember the purpose of their life. And so in light of that, most of the people lived in towns and villages and on farms. And when they came into the city, they came for the purpose of bringing sacrifices and to worship God and to know God because there in the temple, God's presence was evident for everyone to know. Why, even the temple itself, as it was dedicated, had the most holiest of holies where God's presence resided. And only one person would enter that room one time a year. Outside of that would be a court of priests where only those priests who were designated to serve in worship would enter to the closest of God's presence. And outside of that room would be the court of the men where only men were allowed. And then the women were allowed outside of that room. And then finally, those who were not believers or who were not born Jewish were basically left outside of the temple. And so as these people would come and they would worship and they would gather in Jerusalem, whether they were Gentile or Jew, they would come with the anticipation that this was the place where we can come to know the one true God. And in knowing Him, we may worship Him and offer sacrifices and understand what He has called us to do and to believe, and more importantly, what He is able to give us that we cannot give ourselves, which is forgiveness for our sins and a restored relationship with the one who created us. But for all that to happen, there had to be people who lived in the city. There had to be people who would stay inside those walls, not for the purpose of keeping other people out, but for making sure that they had access to come in to the presence of their God. And so in light of that, when you read through the passage, you find numbers. And I, I'm not a numbers person. I don't know about you, but if someone gives me a phone number. If I don't write it down, I'll never remember it three seconds later. But the importance of these numbers for us, and there is great consternation with those who study the passage because it is not consistent with the other uh, lists that are in the Bible. But one of the meanings of the numbers is to remind us 
the purpose of those who live within the city. And if you notice, there are men of Judah and men of Benjamin. Why those two? Why not the other ten tribes? Remember, there were once ten tribes of Israel, or twelve tribes of Israel. And the answer is because the other ten tribes had so turned away from the living God that they had been carried off into exile centuries before. And they were now lost as being identified as the people of God. There were only two tribes left. And in those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, God had promised that he would from that remnant bring a savior who would make an atonement for his people's sins. But if you notice the rest of the list, it deals with priests and Levites and gatekeepers and what were called Nethamims, which were basically temple servants that were there to make sure the temple worked properly. They would be like the janitors who cleaned up the blood after the sacrifices. Well, why was that so important? Because if you notice the numbers, about half of the people who manned the city were involved with the worship of God. Which really speaks to more of the point of the city itself. What was its purpose? Well, notice that it says that one in every ten of those who were living in the country or in the towns and villages and farms, one of every ten were cast by lots. And in that day, when you cast a lot, that was a way of discovering the will of God. And so they would cast a lot to determine which one of the ten would be used by God to protect the city and its purpose. Not only that, they would choose those by lots, and interestingly enough, they were called, they were called men of valor, or men who were valiant. Well, what does that mean? Well, it, it simply means that they were courageous. But they were courageous in this sense, they were determined. Have you ever come against a determined person? Let me tell you, some of you are going to be with family this Christmas, and your, your family has one. They want the turkey carved a certain way, or you have to have a certain tradition that you observe. Why, even this Christmas tree, we, we were unsure whether we would be in the sanctuary this Christmas or not. And so as we, as we began to debate about how to go forward, we actually thought maybe we shouldn't put up the Christmas tree. Well, you would have thought we had told Jesus he wasn't coming back. People got so upset, it was ridiculous. How can we not have the Christmas tree without the Christmas? What was the focus? The focus was not the person of Christ. The purpose or the focus was the tradition. Well, why do I say all this? There are people who can be determined for the wrong things. These men were men who were determined to make sure the city remained loyal to the focus that God had in founding it. Let me ask you, are you that kind of person when it comes to the church? Are you a determined Christian to make sure that the church remains focused on the reason it is here? The purpose God has placed it in the world? Are you determined? 
The second thing about these men as they were being chosen was they were mighty men of valor. And in second thoughts, you look at that and think, well, what's the difference? Well, it's a different kind of courage. It's not just a courage to be determined that things are going to be held a certain way. These mighty men were men who risked their lives to make certain that things were faithfully done according to God's word. In other words, whenever there was the possibility that their life was threatened, they would gladly have given their lives for the purposes of God. I think it's interesting in the denomination that we are a part of, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, one of the questions that is asked of the elders and deacons is, will you remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ even if it requires the cost of your life? You say, well, that, that's ridiculous. Why, nobody's going to get killed for believing in Jesus. Not yet. But there could come a day. These men were not only valiant in their desire to be determined to follow the Lord, they were ready to give their lives for that very purpose. The other thing that's important to remember about these people who were inside the city is that they were there giving themselves self-sacrificially. That's easy for you to say. Self-sacrificially. They were ready to give it all to make sure one that the people were protected as they worshiped God. Protected from what? Idolatry. You see, all the other nations of the world in that time worshiped multiple gods, and they built idols to these false gods. These men were going to make sure that the one true God was worshiped, and an idol would never be seen in the temple because of who God is. But not only that, they were called to preserve the city's purpose. And here is where you and I must be very careful in our day. If we come here only to preserve this building or this campus, we have missed the purpose of the church. If you come here to only worship so that you go home and feel good about the fact that you've worshiped, You've missed the whole purpose of worship. The purpose we have in coming to this place and to gather as God's people is the purpose in recognizing not this building, but we are the church. First Peter chapter 2, Peter writes to those first believers of the first century, and he says, not... Let's go back to the temple and remember that that's where we worship God. You know, he says, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, and your purpose is to declare to the rest of the world the glories of God and the mercies that he has given you. And so we gather in this place to be instructed in God's word, to be built up in our faith, so that as we go out the other six days of, the, of this week, we declare to the world the mercies of God and how we were once a people in darkness, but now we have come 
become a people in the light of Jesus Christ. That's the whole reason we gather. These valiant men, these men of valor, they were determined. They were ready to give their lives to make certain that the Jewish people in that day and that time, after all the sacrifice and all the work and all the hardship to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem's gates, would not make the mistakes their fathers made in sinning against the Lord. It's really powerful when you begin to think about it. But here's the question. How do you maintain that kind of vibrancy? How do you maintain that kind of courage in the days that we live when you have internal conflicts within your life, when you struggle with your own sins and you have external conflicts where you deal with the world and the overwhelming things that allure us to compromise our faith? Well, this is where this is where in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to this young man who is pastoring a church, and he writes this in the vein of what we're reading about in chapter 11 in Nehemiah. Paul writes to Timothy these words, You then, my son, you must be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses in trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of, G of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive or does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. And the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive the share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, Timothy. The Lord will give you insight into all of this. What is he saying to us? The same thing that Nehemiah was saying to the people who were populating the city of Jerusalem. Being faithful means being accountable. It means realizing that we're not here just to feel good, to make ourselves happy, to make ourselves comfortable. We are here to glorify God by declaring the praises of him who called us out of the darkness into the light. And so here's the question, my friend. In the year 2021, what will we as the church of Jesus Christ need to do in order to meet the challenge that God has called us to live? How do we present the gospel to the culture we now live in and to do it faithfully without compromise? How do we make sure that the walls that define the gospel are continued to be faithfully maintained and proclaimed? How do we make sure that people who are in darkness of sin find the light of forgiveness 
and find it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we do this? I want to suggest to you it begins by taking Paul's admonition to Timothy and that is we are first to remember the gospel. I don't know if you thought about this, but we were talking the other night about Christmas's past and I asked my family, I said, are there, are there Christmases that you remember that you've enjoyed more? And I was thinking, there was the time I gave this and I gave that and I gave this. And I'm thinking, surely that would be something they would remember. And, and none of the family said anything like that. They said, oh, I remember the breakfasts we would have at Christmas and the things we would talk about. It was the most unexpected things that would be brought up. And it brought back even more memories of things that we had long forgotten that were enjoyable. This is why we are called to study the gospel. We're called to remember the gospel. We're called to meditate upon the gospel. That once we were separated from God by our sins, we deserved his wrath and his punishment. In fact, God had no, he had no obligation to think of us in any wonderful light. But out of his great mercy, he allowed us to hear that message of Christ's love in in the cross and through that to find forgiveness of our sins. And as you think and ponder that, you begin to think back of the sins of your own life, the things that God forgave you for. Remember that? Do you remember? And as you, and as you, and let, as you let those thoughts wash your mind of how God has forgiven you, how he has cleansed you, how he has freed you from the darkness of that past, Paul says, now think of that as you entrust that message to people today. Because that's why the church exists. It is to declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into light. It's the reason Jerusalem was built. It's the reason the walls were maintained. The temple was considered the place of worship. It was the place where people came to know the truth of God. Now I want you to th think about this. The church are the only people through whom God declares the truth to this world. Does that shock you? And if you take that more seriously, it literally means you, the church, are the instrument that God uses today to proclaim the truth to a world that believes nothing but lies. You're it. Look at your neighbor real quick. Say, you're it, baby. Yeah. Now, the moment you begin to let this dawn on your horizon of your thinking that it is through you that God wants to make his appeal to men and women in darkness, you become very sober in your thinking, don't you? Who am I? You're a person who once had no mercy, but now you have received mercy. You were once in darkness, but now you've been brought into the light. You notice how Paul ends the passage? 
he, he does so, so beautifully. He says, Tim, Timothy, reflect on these things that I'm saying. For God will give you insight. Who will? The preacher? No. God. The only hope of our nation, the only hope of our world, is that we will have men and women who will choose to dwell in the presence of God, the city of the holy God, where God lives. and declare the praises of him who loves us. It's the only hope, the gospel. Let us pray. Our gracious God and our Father, as we think about what it took to reclaim the promises that you had given the Israelites, the sacrifices, the labor, all that was done for the glory of God, we would not be here today if there had not been men of valor, mighty men, valiant to serve you. And so because of that, our prayer this morning is, oh God, make us those kind of people who are valiant in serving your gospel. I think of Paul's admonition in Romans where he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God given under men, where, under heaven, whereby men and women must be saved. I, I want to know the gospel, Jesus. I want to know it so well in my heart, so be so convinced of its truth, so washed in its power that I am unashamed in the days that I live to proclaim the glories of the one who called me out of darkness into his light so that I may be used by you to see that light dawn on others. This is our prayer for this Christmas. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ and the people of God said together,